Join us at the Community Cats Podcast and the National Kitten Coalition for the online kitten conference, which will be held on June 9th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time and June 10th and 11th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. This three-day virtual gathering coordinated with the National Kitten Coalition will feature presentations by experts on raising and saving kittens, setting up and managing kitten-centered shelter programs, and more. Click for details at www.communitycatspodcast.com and sign up today. Recordings will be available, so don't delay. We hope to see you there. You've tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And in today's show, we are starting part one of a two-part series of a webinar that was done in partnership with Neighborhood Cats, and it's called Return to Field and Targeting the Neighborhood Cat Program. This was done a few months ago with the folks at Neighborhood Cats. This will be part one, and then next week we will have part two. So please feel free to tune in next week or subscribe to the show to make sure you get a reminder for that. But enjoy Return to Field and Targeting, the Community Cat Program. If you'd like to watch the session and get the handouts, you can go to the link in the show notes and you can get the handouts or just go to YouTube and you can watch the webinar there and you'll be able to see the slides there. But if you happen to be tuning into the podcast in the car, this is part one of Return to Field and Targeting, the Community Cat Program presented by Neighborhood Cats. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Stacy, and thanks everybody for taking time out today to learn more about return to field and targeting. Just want to say at the outset, you don't need to um, be madly scrambling uh, notes or copying links. Just download the slides. It's one of the handouts are all the slides from today's presentation, and they have live links in them. So you can just sit back and just make sure you have that handout. So as far as the content today, first I want to talk about uh, just make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to terminology. So you'll hear me mention the term a lot, community cat. And what does that mean? Well, basically, it's a free-roaming, unowned cat. So uh, sometimes they're referred to as feral cats, and often they are feral, feral being a behavioral description for unsocialized cats. And uh, sometimes they're referred to as strays. And if you want to be technical about that, strays are referred cats that have been in a home at some point and maybe they've been lost or abandoned, but they tame very, well, they are tame and they may revert to a feral state and then quickly come back. Sometimes, um, you know, cats don't neatly fall into certain categories, like they have qualities of being owned and characteristics of being unowned and some are more or less feral. But if they're out there, they're free roaming. Um, they're not owned in a traditional sense that we consider uh, pet cats, then they would qualify as uh, as a community cat. And do keep in mind that, you know, people often think feral is a black or white thing, but it really is a range of socialization. And community cats can range from uh, very friendly to being extremely um, unsocialized and feral. So colony is another, another term that people use differently. 
And the way that we define a colony at Neighborhood Cats is what you see here, which is a, a group of community cats who share a common food source and a common territory. And could be one cat, could be uh, 200 cats. It's, it's really not dependent on the number. It's dependent on their sharing a food source and territory. Also, you could have colonies that include roaming pets who uh, go home at night, maybe, or come out at night or whatever it might be, but they are part of the colony as well. So let's get into what is return to fields, because we're going to talk about return to field first. And then in the second half of the presentation, we'll talk about how do you combine return to field with other forms of trap neuter return in order to have the most efficient community-wide program available. And today's presentation is a little different than what we usually do. We're usually very focused in our webinars on the hands-on trapping and colony caretaking. But we want today to take a step back and look at how do you organize a TNR program on a very large scale and get the best results for the resources that you're able to invest. So this is a quick schematic of what a return to field program looks like. So you've got, starting up on the upper left, you've got a community cat and he's trapped. So in a return to field situation, typically this cat is being trapped by a citizen or um, somebody who's got a problem with the cat and doesn't want the cat around. So the cat is trapped and brought to the local open admission shelter. And then in the past, the outcome for this cat, if the cat was feral and unadoptable for reasons of temperament, or if the shelter is overcrowded, uh, was overcrowded, and uh, there's simply no space, even if they're adoptable and considered friendly, the typical result was euthanasia. So what's developed with the return to field program is that the shelter is not the end of the line. Instead of euthanasia, the cat is spayed or neutered as we go down the chart here. After um, a sufficient time for recovery, usually 24 hours, Kitty is returned right back to where he was trapped. Now he's fixed and ear-tipped and rabies vaccinated, and he's released uh, as close as possible to where he was originally located. So that's the return to field. Now, a question that often comes up is, well, how is this different from trap neuter return or TNR? And it's a great question because in general, when you look at the scenario that's in this graphic, cats being trapped, cats being neutered, cats being returned. So how is that not just TNR? And in a very broad sense of the term TNR, you could say that return to field is one form of it. But in the way that the term TNR is usually used, there are some key distinctions and they have to do with who's doing the trapping, what the intent of the trapper was, and where the cat ends up. So with a trap neuter return project, the people doing the trapping like the cats, and they're trying to help them by getting them fixed. So you might be talking about the person who feeds the colony of cats, or somebody who's helping that feeder, or somebody who just wants to make sure the cats can't reproduce anymore. Now, when you're doing return to field, as I mentioned before, the person doing the trapping is typically doesn't like the cats, doesn't want them around, isn't trying to help them, is basically trying to get rid of them. So you have very different intent in the trapping. And then with a typical TNR project, the cats, after they're trapped, are going straight to a spay-neuter clinic. With a return to field program, first, they're going to an open admission shelter. So the paths that the cats follow are very different. So you have different kinds of trappers, you have different intent, and you have different places where these cats enter the system. And those are the key distinctions between return to field and TNR. And because they're very different, 
you know, there are different policies and different programs built around them. So let's talk about where return to field came from. And in the history of this, I, I actually play a very minor role, but um, I did get to see how it started firsthand. So I was doing back in 2007, 2008, I was working with the Humane Society of the United States and working with them on adopting a pro TNR policy and stance. And one of the things that happened was HSUS organized this kind of tour, uh, educational conference tour around the country where if you think you're going to hear a lot from me today, I used to talk for two days straight <laughs> to an audience and um, go over every aspect of trap neuter return. And one of the stops along the way was Jacksonville. Part of what I used to um, talk about in these presentations was how do you get your local animal control, your local open admission shelter, how do you get them involved in TNR? And one of the things I suggested was approach them and ask them if they will notify you when an ear-tipped cat, so um, community cats when they're fixed are ear-tipped, and that's a straight line cut of about one centimeter off the tip of the left ear, and that identifies them as a community cat and as having been fixed. So I suggested ask them to let you know when they have an ear-tipped cat. And if you know where they where the cat came from, you can just pick the cat up and let them go or look around that neighborhood if you want to try to identify the feeder. And it's just, it's a win-win for the shelter. Their live release rate increases, and of course the cat gets to go home alive. So the head of uh, this local high-volume spay-neuter clinic in Jacksonville is uh, First Coast No More Homeless Pets, and the executive director there met with the local animal control agency and asked him, can you uh, let us know and return ear-tipped cats to us? And at the time, the director of the local shelter was an interim director, and with no uh, background in animal welfare, he was actually an engineer who worked for the county, but they needed somebody to be the director, so he, he stepped up and did that. He thought about it, and he came back to Rick, the head of First Coast No More Homeless Pets, a couple of days later, and he said, listen, instead of, uh, I'll not only let you have the ear tip cats, I'll give you all the community cats, <laughs> and you can, you can fix them and return them to your heart's delight. And that's how the very first large-scale return to field program began. And of course, Rick was a little overwhelmed. He thought he'd be dealing with maybe a few dozen cats, not thousands, as it turned out. But he got a grant from uh, Best Friends Animal Society, which saw the promise in this, and took on the challenge and began the program. And when you look at the statistics that came out of this, they're really, really impressive. So this is the first like six, seven years of the program, this chart. And you'll see that the, the blue is the number of cats that were coming into the county shelter. Red is the number of cats who were euthanized. And the green is the number of cats who were returned to field. So the program began in August of 2008. And you can see there was um, a little less than 2,000 cats returned to field. Uh, you can see correspondingly how euthanasia in 2008 started to drop compared to the year before, 2007. Return to field peaked in numbers over uh, closer to 5,000 in 2009 in its first full year. And then you start to see very dramatic decreases in the red and in euthanasia. By the time you get to 2014, uh, you've gone from over 11,000 cats a year being euthanized to a few hundred. So it was that dramatic an impact. Uh, you can also see this very successful return to field program because the number of cats being returned to field gradually 
decreased over time. And we'll talk about how you accomplish that because intake also started dropping. I think as not direct result of return to field, but as a as a side effect of uh, changing the culture from if you've got a problem with cats, you drop them off and they get killed to if you got a problem with cats, you get them spay neutered and you put them back. So the success of the Jacksonville program really caught the attention of the animal welfare field and it began to be adopted in more and more places around the country. So let's talk about the policy behind this. So euthanasia was the dominant model for how to deal with community cats, especially ferals. So so why did that stop? Why was there this drive to create a new kind of program? And you know, if euthanasia is the dominant approach at your shelter or you know, had been at others in the past, you know, why, why should you stop doing that? And here's the reasons. So keep in mind that euthanasia was the dominant model for how to handle community cats at open admission shelters for decades. And over time, th- these shelters never saw much improvement. Um, intake didn't go down. Euthanasia rates stayed very high. You might have 80, 90, like in Jacksonville, it was close to 90%. Complaint calls didn't go down because the number of cats in the community didn't go down. So basically, euthanizing was a total failure when you're looking at community cat management on a on a community level. None of the metrics that you would consider as reflective of how we're doing were showing any success. So meanwhile, euthanizing is not a cost-free solution. Um, it's there's numerous studies that have shown that workers and shelters that have high euthanasia rates for healthy animals experience uh, far above average rates of psychological distress. And that's reflected in statistics on substance abuse, on suicide rates, on post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome. And it's not hard to figure out why, because people generally don't go into working with animals because they want to see healthy ones dying. They go in because they want to help them. And then they end up in this kind of no-win situation where animals are flooding in and you've got, uh, you know, maybe you've got 50 cages and, and they're all full and there are 50 more cats coming tomorrow and, you know, your adoption rates are low and what are you supposed to do? So, you know, people burn out real quick and there's high turnover in addition to mental illness. Poor public relations, again, usually not the fault of the shelter. They end up in this kind of no-win situation, but then the public is like, "Oh, I don't, I don't want to go there because that's where animals die," and you end up with lower adoptions. So, having this as a policy uh, wasn't just a failure in terms of cat control; uh, it was, it was really has been a human failure as well. Why doesn't euthanasia work? I think it's really important to understand that. So, there's there's a number of reasons. In most communities, and, and I think this is reflective of the failure of euthanasia as a policy, after decades, there's still too many cats compared to the amount of resources that are available to manage them. So even if you wanted to try to trap and euthanize all of them, there just isn't the resources, the manpower, the, the vehicles, the equipment, the vet techs, whatever it is to do that. You also have the people out there in the community who, who take care of these guys and they love them. And they don't cooperate when they know the end is that their cats, who they're very bonded to, are going to die. If you don't capture all the cats in a colony, then basically you've just left a lot of resources behind for the ones you didn't get. 
and they're going to reproduce just as much, but more of their kittens are going to survive because of the additional resources. So, and it's very hard in when there's a euthanasia policy, usually the people doing the trapping don't know how many cats are in the colony and don't have the time to um, investigate that and can't hang out for hours. And when there's only two cats left, they need to move on. Those of you who do TNR trapping know that, well, if you've got a 10-cat colony, it's not that hard to catch the first uh, seven or eight, but it may take quite a bit of time to get numbers nine and 10, and animal control does not have that luxury. So you end up with cats left behind, and all the resources that were there before are now just there for them. And that also ties into what is known as the vacuum effect. That vacuum effect refers to the fact that when you have community cats located, uh, you know, living at a certain location, they're not there by accident. They're there because the environment can support them. So what do they need? They need adequate food. They need enough food and they need adequate shelter from whatever the environmental conditions are. And if you take cats away, but the food source and the shelter is left unaltered, that's what's called a vacuum. And you've created an opportunity for new cats to repopulate that that territory. And that's a big reason why removing cats and euthanizing them doesn't work. And and really, that's so important that I, I kind of want to go through it a little step by step. So you walk away from today understanding why euthanizing community cats is, is just a futile, a futile policy. Cats of the Wild is the podcast for cat lovers who want to make a difference. Listen to inspiring and engaging stories of wild cat conservation and learning how you can help protect cats all over the world. Search for Cats of the Wild in your favorite podcast app now. Do you want to make things easier on yourself and the others in your organization? Our friends at Dubert have teamed up with the Dallas Pets Alive and Spay-Neuter Network teams, and together they have created the Companion Case Management Module. It allows you to be more proactive with all your organization's needs, create cases for your clients, and organize them by type. Whether it is a rehoming situation, a pet parent needing food or medical assistance, or simply spay and neuter inquiries, CCM can help you manage all of them right from the Dubert system. Plus, a huge bonus, it allows you to connect with those clients right from the case so there is no need to open up new windows for emails or pull out your phone for text messages. Check it out and learn more at www.dubert.com to get started today. Ever wanted to quickly connect, collaborate, or problem solve with others in the animal welfare field who are, you know, real people? Look no further than Maddie's Pet Forum. Maddie's Pet Forum brings people of animal welfare together with the common goal to keep more people and pets together. We share ideas, expertise, offer each other support, resources, and more. Visit forum.maddiespetforum.org slash cats. Maddie's Pet Forum. Come for an answer. Stay for the community. So let's um, let's take a, a colony with a fixed uh, food source, like at a grocery store. Okay, so every day this grocery store, and I couldn't find a, a dumpster, so I, I had to use a garbage can in this graphic. But every day this grocery store puts out a certain amount of food and uh, you know trash, and uh, there's enough food in the dumpster to support ten community cats. So lo and behold, here we are at the grocery store and we have 10 community cats with with the um, food source. So sometimes people ask, well, what happens when these cats reproduce and there's only enough food for 10? Well, that's when uh, nature takes over. 
and you'll have cats starting to get sick because they're malnourished. You'll end up with a disease. Uh, you'll find FIV and FELV in these malnourished colonies. You'll find some of the cats will start migrating outwards, looking for new food sources and new territory. But basically, over time, there'll be little ups and downs in the numbers, but over time, nature will balance it out so that there's only as many cats there as there's food to provide for them. So you end up with, you know, over time, a fairly stable population. It doesn't go up to 100 if you don't do anything. It, it's capped by what's called the carrying capacity of that location. So let's say that the new owner doesn't want cats around in the lot, so he calls animal control, who's taking a traditional approach, and they come and they trap the cats, and boom, they're all gone. But what's the problem here? Yes, the food source is left, right? There aren't 10 cats, but there's enough food for 10 cats. And guess what? This grocery store is not located on an island in the middle of the Pacific, uh, like we are in Hawaii. <laughs> um, it's part of a neighborhood. And that neighborhood has different areas, and those areas have their own community cats, right? And if they're not fixed, they're experiencing the kind of population pressure that I just described. There's only enough food for however many of them. When they got more than that number, some of them are going to start looking for new places to go because there's not food. And guess what? There's food for uh, 10 cats at this empty grocery store now. And sooner or later, a couple of cats from the neighborhood are going to discover this food source. And it usually happens pretty quickly. In my experience, it, it can, uh, well, I'll give you an example in a moment. But so you've got Adam and Eve here. Uh, they, they look around, they say, you know, lots of food, no competition. Let's stay around here. Let's settle down. And guess what? Let's have a family or two. And boom, within a two or three breeding cycles, you're right back up to 10 cats and the vacuum is filled. So I'll give you a real life example that just happened to us on Maui. There was a hotel that had a very successful trap neuter return program. They started out with somewhere between two and 300 cats on the grounds. They have over 40 acres of grounds. And one of the employees there started a TNR program, got all the cats fixed. Eight years later, they're down to 31, right? So, you know, an 80 to 90% reduction in the number of cats. So very successful. Unfortunately, some of the local conservationists decided that 31 was 31 too many because the hotel is on a flight path for an endangered bird and the bird might land on the ground. And then if there are cats there, the fear was that they would harm them. So they basically forced the hotel to get rid of the cats. And, and the cats went to a sanctuary, fortunately, which is a, a rare time when it was appropriate. So now all of a sudden they had zero cats, right? Problem solved? Well, no, right? Because there was a reason that there were 300 cats there eight years ago. And within two months, two months, that's all it took, there were 50 new cats on the grounds. Now, all of them unaltered, none of them managed. They have a major, major problem on their hands now. They should have just left the TNR colony in place and let it slowly die out. So this is why uh, euthanasia is such an unsuccessful policy, because you only get short-term gains before you have that problem again. And if there are, you know, uh, if you talk to an animal control officer who, who has some history, who's been doing this for a while and has been involved in these kind of trap and remove efforts, they'll tell you, you know, they get a call six months later, a year later, just as many cats at the location. So what are the benefits 
for return to field programs. So obviously, as you could see in Jacksonville, you have lower euthanasia rates, right? Because you're not putting the cats down, you're releasing them back to where they came from. And let me emphasize one point, which is we're not talking about taking every single cat that comes into an open admission shelter, fixing them and putting them right back. We're talking about cats who you can surmise from their condition, their overall health, that it's highly likely that they have a food source and they have a feeder and that they're doing quite well for themselves, thank you, wherever they were taken from. So we're not putting sickly, malnourished, incapacitated cats back. We're putting, we're talking about healthy, good body score, bright eyes, clean coat, cats who, like I say, you, you may not be able to identify their specific caretaker, but it's a pretty good bet that they're out there. So these cats are going back outside. Um, now your shelter has freed up resources that were spent maybe trapping, definitely housing, euthanasia, disposing of the body. These things add up to an awful lot of money if you're talking about a high volume. That's all freed up, hopefully maybe for a TNR program or for dog behavior or for whatever it is that you'd rather be spending your money on besides killing cats. You also get a healthier shelter environment from less crowding. So there's less disease among the cat shelter population. Again, not saying this is fair, but this is reality is that as your euthanasia rate drops and your live release rate goes up, you're going to get more donations. People are going to come to the shelter more and, and for more adoptions. So public support starts to rise. There's a culture change. And to me, this is really super important. Uh, we're talking inside and outside the shelter. So inside the shelter, like I said, I don't people don't go into this field because they want to see animals die. And the ones who do stick around in these high euthanasia situations, most of them wish it, it was otherwise. And then when I've, I've seen this firsthand, when you introduce a return to field program and all of a sudden the cats they were expecting to never get out alive are being set free, it's a tremendous morale boost. You know, I've literally in one shelter in Albuquerque, when um, they first introduced the return to field program, one of the techs who was responsible for a lot of the euthanasia procedures asked if she could come along when the first cats were being released. So, of course, the answer was yes. And when that cat was let out of the trap and he ran off into his territory, she just started crying. She said she couldn't believe it. She was so happy to see this paradigm change. I'll give you another example was in San Antonio, when I was with PetSmart Charities, we partnered with Best Friends to, to do these large-scale programs that involved return to field. But San Antonio is too big of a city to effectively target, and that's the second half of our presentation today. So we had to cut the city in half and really only do the return to field and, and, and the follow-up trapping in half of the zip codes. Well, that ended up striking the animal control officers who worked for the city shelter as somewhat arbitrary, right? So if a cat came in from one zip code, they lived. And if they came in from another zip code, they died. So they got together on their own, the ACOs. They got a small grant. Don't know where they, how they did it, but they found the money. And they paid for the expense of having these cats that came outside of the project area fixed. And then on their own time, they drove the cats back and let them go. So that's the kind of culture change you can see. Outside the shelter, uh, I mentioned this before, you're, you're now teaching people that the way to handle community cats is not to drop them off and you know wash your hands of it, but get them fixed. That 
that's the solution to community cats. And if that's what you're doing and you're the community leader, uh, generally when you're the larger shelter in town, over the years, people will just naturally start to follow your lead and you'll see TNR programs growing. Another thing that is often not talked about is that cats that end up in shelters, if any are going to be saved in a high euthanasia shelter, it's going to be the ones that are friendly. But we know from long experience that just about any cat, when they're trapped, freaks out and can act quite frightened and, and appear to be feral. And if they don't have some type of identification like a microchip or a collar, uh, they could be euthanized uh, and mistaken as a feral cat, or there may not be enough room anyway, whether they're friendly or not. So lots of people let their cats roam. Lots of these cats don't have any identification. And when you're doing a high euthanasia program, you're probably putting down some percentage of people's pets. With a return to field program, they're just going home and you are avoiding that. So won't everybody freak out? Um, if you're in a community and you decide, okay, we're going to start putting the cats back. Number one fear is, oh my God, um, everybody's going to go crazy and, and we're going to get so much heat that you know this program isn't going to succeed. That's everybody's fear. Don't, don't, there's nothing wrong with feeling that because every time a return to field program has started, that has been a number one concern. But we don't want to just take these things at face value. We want to kind of try to look into them and see what the truth is. So will everybody freak out? So this was a national survey that was commissioned by Alley Cat Allies, commissioned by them, but conducted by an independent a national uh, polling organization. And this, this is the question that was posed to people which is, you know, if you saw a stray cat and you only had two choices, you know, you could leave the cat outside or you could have the cat caught euthanized, what do you consider to be the most humane option? So the results were these. 81% said leave the cat where it is. Only 14% said have the cat put down. Okay, let's look at another survey similar that was done some years later, commissioned by Best Friends Animal Society. This time they introduced a third alternative, which was TNR, have the cat fixed and then return. So that was choice A. Choice B was the usual euthanasia. Choice C was just leave them alone uh, and don't do anything. And the results there were similar. And you can see that, uh, I think it's, let's see what the total is. You've got uh, 68% that favored trap new to return. When you add that to the, um, just leave them where they are, you've got 76% of the respondents favored a live outcome and only a quarter thought that euthanasia was a good idea. And then one last study that I want to show you, this was a, a survey done in 2008 of Ohio adults, so people over the age of 18. If you're into data on free roaming cats, this is a real great study to read. But just pulling out a couple of the data points, 43% of the participants had seen free roaming cats in their neighborhoods on a regular basis. And 26% had fed them at some point during the prior year. So that's 26% of adults feeding free-roaming cats at least once during the prior year. So what do you what do you make of this when you know you take all this data and you look at it together? The conclusion that I reach is that return to field is the policy that's most aligned with the majority of people uh, in this country. Most people favor a live outcome. And they're willing to leave the community cats where they are in the environment. And euthanasia is aligned with the minority who complain about cats and want them removed. 
And that's what the data shows. Now, that is usually not the experience of an open admission shelter or an animal control agency or the person at town hall who takes these calls. And when you think about it, it's because there's a very natural distortion taking place. And it's that who calls, right? Does the majority who likes the cats around, do they call up the shelter and say, hey, just wanted to thank you for leaving the cats where they are. We really appreciate them being around. I enjoy feeding them. No, of course not. The calls you get are the ones who are complaining, who don't want them there, who say they're a nuisance, who wants them to be gone. So if you're trying to judge how the public's going to react based just on what's incoming to your call center, you're going to be really afraid that if you start doing a return to field program, you know, they're going to show up with torches and pitchforks. In reality, that's not the case. And you're going to actually have more support, not less, when you introduce these programs. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats.